I didn't leave home thinking that I had a 100% success rate of coming back home alive. But of course, I was hoping. The World Beyond. Emotion is of tomorrow. Brought to you by Michelle Mack. Hello and welcome back to my podcast, The World Beyond the Emotioneers of Tomorrow. I'm Michael Mark and I'm thrilled to introduce a truly exceptional guest, Tor Peterson, an award-winning traveler, speaker and adventurer. Tor is unequivocally celebrated as the only person to have visited every country in the world entirely without flying, a remarkable feat documented in his book and documentary. Ten years ago, Tor embarked on his epic journey, Once Upon a Saga, with a self-imposed rule to not return until his mission was complete. Now he's back home in the lovely Denmark with a world record in his pocket. As of May 24, 2023, he's officially the first person in the world to have traveled to every country without ever boarding a flight. His journey didn't just take him to every corner of the globe physically, but also connected him with countless cultures and people profoundly shaping his worldview. Welcome to all and thank you for being here today to share your incredible experiences and insights with us. Well, thank you so much. That was a wonderful introduction. I don't think I can live up to any of that. <laughs> I'm sure you will. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's great to have you here with us today, and I look forward to hear more about your inspiring projects. Before we get into the deeper discussion, let's kick off with four quick-fire questions to help our listeners to get a quick glimpse of who you are. Are you set for this? Yeah, let's give it a go. I'm not known for short answers, but let's try. Excellent. Here we go. One. What's your all-time favorite book or movie, and why does it resonate with you? Favorite book is Endurance, about Shackleton's uh, amazing adventure to Antarctica. And it resonates with me because those men, they struggled and uh, I had a great deal of struggle within my own project. Two. Can you share a unique hobby or interest that most people might not know you have? I enjoy kayaking, and I think more and more people know about it now because I recently started sharing, but I do try to get in my kayak whenever I can. Three. What's your main source of motivation and inspiration in your daily life? I am curious about what tomorrow brings. I think that's probably the greatest source of inspiration to continue and uh, find my way to the next day, the next week, the next month and the next year. Four. If you could spend a day with any historical or contemporary figure, who would it be and why? Mm, I would love to spend a day with Ibn Battuta. He was for perhaps more than 700 years the world's most traveled person and uh, he would be an amazing kinship to get to pick his brain just for a little bit that would be something i like to start our conversations with a provocative question do you agree if i ask you a challenging question to start a conversation yes please give it a go here it is Tor, in an era where technology and social media virtually put the world in the palm of your hands, why would people still physically travel at all? Isn't the idea of exploration and personal presence in the world rather antiquated, given the convenience of virtual experiences and online connections? 
No, I do not agree. I believe that we have our senses, we have our smell and our taste, and we have our sight and our hearing and uh, touch and feeling. And those are the basic senses, and we have so many more senses than that. And to go out into the world, you get to use those senses and uh, just be a sponge and take it all in. And I think we're far away from getting that kind of experiences through technology quite obvious that you try to avoid as many of new technologies as possible and I, I stumbled over reading about your story that you never took an airplane um, I mean what inspired you uh, of not taking an airplane or why did you take that decision it uh, came about in early 2013 when my father sent me an email and it were, there was a link about extreme travelers And I started diving into that world and I discovered that nobody in history had gone to every country completely without flying. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that we were in 2013 with so many travel happy people and that there was still something of that magnitude that had not been done. Uh, for many years, I grew up feeling like everything has been done. They've been to the highest mountains, the deepest seas. They went to the moon. I mean, what is left for the rest of us? But nobody had done it in 2013. So I didn't think I was going to do it, but I, you can say I was infected almost. And I started talking to friends and family and nobody had the same interest in it as I had. But uh, it kept growing and I started just playing with the idea. Not saying that I was going to do it, but just if I was going to do it, how would I do it? Which way would I go east, west, north, south? And what would I pack? And how long would it take? And what kind of budget and all of this? And suddenly I realized that I was so invested I had to do it. How long was that period? I mean, from the first idea when your dad told you about that, how long did it then take to make the decision? Because I think in nowadays uh, life, we feel quite comfy at our home space. And uh, I think it's quite a, a challenge to tell to your relatives, friends and everybody, hey, I'm going to be gone literally <laughs> for a couple of years. I mean, how long was that preparation time? Well, I read that article in January 2013, and I left Denmark in October 2013. So it's a good question when I actually decided I was going to do it. I imagine after maybe three months, I decided I was going to do it, and then the rest was proper planning and not so much daydreaming anymore. And um, the second part of your question would be how how people they relate to, something like that, that I would be away. And my family and my friends were used to it. My background is within shipping and logistics. And uh, in 2013, I'd been working with shipping and logistics for 12 years. And for eight years, I was working as an expat. So I'd been two years in Libya, one year in Bangladesh, in the Arctic, in Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, many places around the world. So they were used to seeing me come and go. So you didn't have any, you were literally fearless of, of, of doing that trip? No, it's a big world. Don't let anyone tell you anything else. It's a very, very big world. And th there's a lot in this world. And like many other people, I follow the news and media has a tendency to tell us the worst of the worst stories. And we hear these stories from morning to evening and all week long and all year around. So 
I knew that it was risky business. I had trust in that most of the world and most of the people I would meet would be ordinary people and it would be calm. But I also knew that there would be risk involved. And I knew I would have to go to countries that had active war zones or conflict areas. And I knew that there would be disease out there. And I knew that some of the transportation I would have to rely on would be doubtful at best. So I didn't leave home thinking that I had a 100% success rate of coming back home alive. Uh, but of course, I was hoping. I guess that's a quite difficult one to then finally set off. Um, You've just, just been speaking about challenges you um, did foresee uh, before you started your trip. Can you name uh, some of those and which countries um, and how did you deal with all of that? I mean, apparently that did happen or things went wrong. <laughs> Maybe you can uh, um, point out the three biggest uh, challenging moments uh, and in which country did they happen and how did you deal with them? Yeah, well, in, in terms of danger, the biggest incidences would have been... I was sick with cerebral malaria. This is malaria where it goes to your brain and you can be dead within a couple of days if you're not treated. And uh, I was brought to a clinic uh, after a day and uh, given a lot of medicine. And then I was sick for about 14 days. And then beyond the 14 days, I couldn't carry my bags. I'd lost so much weight and energy that I had to rebuild my strength to continue traveling. And I continued shaking. My hands were shaking for, I can't remember if it was three weeks or three months, but it was a very long time after that. My hands were still shaking. So that was in Western Africa. I was sick in Ghana. But I think the mosquito probably got me in Liberia. Um, I was sleeping on the ground at a gas station in a jungle <laughs> and, and I was a buffet for mosquitoes that night. Yeah. So um, another story is uh, from Central Africa. So now we have two African stories. Um, I was uh, alone in a taxi together with the taxi driver. No other passengers. We were driving down a dirt road in a jungle in the middle of the night. It was incredibly dusty and it was a really bad road. And around 3 a.m. in the morning, we see three shadows in front of us and there's a checkpoint. And these uh, three shadows are uh, men in military uniforms and they stop us and they force us out of the vehicle. And I quickly realized that these are very, very drunk men and that they are armed to the teeth, and they are highly aggressive. And it's one of those situations where you can feel it in your bones that this is not good. This is, this is as risky as, as anything could possibly be, that you have alcohol and emotions and weapons involved. And there was such hatred uh, towards me from one of these men, which could very well be because of hundreds of years of colonialism in, in the region or maybe something else. But I knew that I was going to die that night. I thought I was going to die within seconds or minutes. And fortunately, I was wrong. Um, after about 45 minutes uh, of being very calm, on the outside at least, 
and uh, very complacent and very, very lucky. Um, we were able to get back in the taxi and then leave the checkpoint uh, alive, fortunately. Uh, then I can tell you I've been on quite a lot of soul cellars. So a soul cellar is a ship or a vessel which is in so poor condition that when you go on board this vessel, your soul is for sale because you don't know if it's going to sink the next time it sails out from port. And this is typically a vessel that was in really good condition at some point. And then when it uh, finished its service time after 20 or 30 years, it was sold. And then it was sold again and sold and sold and sold. And eventually you end up having these vessels which are in unbelievably poor condition. And nobody is in any doubt that the end of these vessels are going to be that they are going to sink. Everybody knows at some point it will sink. You just don't know when. So maybe it will take 10 more trips or 20 more trips or one more trip. And I traveled with a lot of these soul sellers. And today I have confirmation that three of them are at the bottom of the ocean. So sometimes you can be in danger without knowing you're in danger. And again, I guess I was just lucky. Crazy. I mean, in hindsight, would you... Um Knowing all your experience, would you or can you pretend of things like that to happen? I mean, obviously, you can't choose another ship, or you can get a vaccination against malaria, or like you. I mean, obviously, when you get checked yeah. by uh, people who are drunk and have guns in their hand, it's difficult to <laughs> um, to change the situation. But are there any things you say like I would do them differently, or that those things won't cure, or is there no protection? Yeah. I was in Africa for two years and three months. Uh, that's how long it took me to visit all 54 countries. And the majority of the African countries, especially during uh, rain season, they have malaria. So malaria is a risk. And if you want to take medicine against it, then you can do that for two months, maybe three months. But beyond that period, uh, Some people at, at least say that the medicine starts to do more damage to your inner organs than malaria would if you get malaria. And, you know, more than a, a billion people, they live with this. You know, it's just a part of their, their daily life. So you can take a lot of precautions. You can wear light clothes. Um, you can be more cautious around uh, dusk and dawn when the mosquito, uh, the malaria mosquitoes are very active. You can use a repellent, mosquito repellent. You can sleep in an air-conditioned room or, or under a mosquito net uh, that has been treated with repellent and things like this. And I did all of this uh, most of the time. <laughs> But this one night, I arrived really, really late to a village in the jungle and I was looking for a place to sleep and they wanted too much money and I was on a small budget and I only had four hours before I needed to continue with the next bus. So I saw this gas station and I saw these men that were guarding the gas station and I asked if I could sleep there. And they said, yeah, no problem. And I was looking for a place where I could hang my hammock and my hammock has a mosquito net when there was nowhere. And I was so tired and I said, oh, it's just four hours, three hours, four hours. So I'll just lie on the ground. And then the mosquitoes were eating me all night. So yeah, that's that. With the soldiers in the middle of the night, of course, I could have traveled in the daytime. 
In this case, it was the last day of my visa, and I was trying to get to the border before my visa expired, uh, so I wouldn't be illegally in the country. So that's why I was traveling throughout the night. Different solution could have been to go back to the capital and apply for an extension and uh, then travel in the daytime. With the ships, I mean, if you're not flying, sometimes there's no other option. <laughs> so I don't know what to do. Maybe you can buy a, a life jacket or you can bring a small, small inflatable boat with you or something like this. But uh, sometimes there's just risk involved and you have to gamble a little bit. When you look back over the last 10 years, uh, by having all these amazing stories you went through, uh, what are the most important lessons you have learned from your traveling? I learned a, a, so many things. I don't even know where to start. Um, I learned a lot of things about myself. I learned a lot of things about the world and about people. If we start in very basic terms, I learned that if you want to achieve a goal in life, then a key ingredient is never to give up. So that might be looking for a job or looking for a husband or a wife or looking for uh, finishing an education or learning to play an instrument. I don't care. But if there's something you want, a key ingredient is never to give up. If you give up one time, then it's game over. So never, ever give up. Now, not giving up is not the only ingredient Of course, you need to be resourceful and you need to be active and presentable. And uh, there are a number of, of different things that play in and, and sometimes you have to be lucky as well. But even luck, you can make yourself more lucky. You cannot guarantee luck, but you can make yourself uh, more lucky or less lucky. So that's also something to look into. I learned that people all around the world, no matter what the media says, or no matter what your neighbor says, or no matter what people say on social media, people around the world are just people. And they like good food and family, and they like to play games, and they follow sports and music, and they don't like it when it's raining, and they don't like to get stuck in traffic. And people, they are all about family, and they go to school, and they go to work. And most people, they are incredibly kind and forthcoming and helpful. It's very easy to get a smile from someone or a handshake or some good advice. And it's also very easy to be invited to for a meal and, and sometimes even to get a place to sleep for the night. I mean, you can truly rely on people in every country in the world. I've never been to a country, and I've been to every country. <laughs> I've never been to a country where I didn't feel that I had help and support from someone local at some point. So I really, really feel relaxed in regards to people around the world. And I hear terrible stories from Palestine now, or from Israel, or from Ecuador, or Myanmar. But I have confidence that even though I hear terrible stories, someone is playing PlayStation, and someone is falling in love, and someone is planning to get married. You know, these things, they continue to happen even in the hardest parts of this planet. And you didn't say so much about your uh, getting to know you better. Um, a lot of people do say, like, <laughs> be on your own and you be a better person. Um, can you um, sign that uh, thesis? Or, like, what was the self-reflection uh, 
Uh, how did it come mm. to that? Was it really the, the fact of being alone? I've spent a lot of time alone. Sometimes you can be alone even if you're in a room full of people. And uh, I mean, I've learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about my uh, my own limits. I've learned a lot about my capabilities. I've grown as a person. I've have learned about the world and geopolitics and reading people and negotiating and. Uh, interview tactics and fundraising and running social media and i've learned about geography and language and vexology and i mean there's the, the amount it's been a, a true education and through that education i have grown i think i've become a little more philosophical throughout all of this and uh, one thing that i do think about is where does life experience come from and of course life experience comes from living so as we go forward in life we we learn and we discover and we explore and and we gain life experience but what if there's a fast track to life experience what if you can have 20 or 30 or 40 years of life experience in in five years maybe how can you go about that and i think we gain more life experience when we're challenged and this brings me back to your uh, when you were trying to provoke me a little bit in the beginning with with your question about technology i think that we learn as people that we gain life experience when we're challenged uh, when we're dealing with something where we're not 100% comfortable And this could be language or culture or environment or just trying to deal with something we have very little knowledge about. Trying to solve situations in that kind of environment pushes us forward much, much faster. And this is where we gain life experience in the fast track. You were mentioning earlier that um, you say there is something like a lack of the brave ones out there so that you can actually um, guide your luck a little bit if you believe uh, in your goals and if you um, work hard for them. Do you still see boundaries? Because you said you came to your limit sometimes um, and to be stubborn, sticking to goals. Um, how did that correlation of like uh, believe in the dream, you can do it and uh, be the luck of the brave or having the luck of the brave and still sticking to goals and boundaries, um, how that correlate to you? Mm, well, I, I set out with some really strict uh, rules for my project. And uh, I had three cardinal rules. One was that I couldn't fly at any point. And one was that I had to spend more than 24 hours in every country before I could count it as a visit. And one was that I couldn't return home until I reached the final country or if I quit the project. And those rules were merciless. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not a problem to deal with those rules if you're traveling for six months or a year or two years. But if you keep going, then you will eventually find yourself locked into a prison that you have created for yourself. Uh, you're, you're imprisoned by your own ambitions, by the goal that you have set yourself. I don't know if that answers your, your question, but I, I have been very, very strict with, with, with these rules. And it made my life and my everyday uh, an absolute nightmare in periods Uh, I have 
been to hell a couple of times and had to fight my way back because of my own ambitions. And it's an interesting topic about personal ambitions because what are you willing to pay to achieve your own ambitions? And I set out on a project which I thought would take four years, maybe three and a half if I was fast. And it ended up taking almost 10 years. And 10 years is an incredibly long time in many regards. And one regard is certainly friends and friendships and family. And in terms of my own age and my wife, I have a wife and I had a wife throughout this, um, her age and the possibility of starting our own family. And I mean, eventually you would have to ask yourself, what is it that you want? And are you paying a price that's too high for it? And that is something I'm still reflecting on today. Interesting. Now, the reason I asked it, even though I might not have posed the question correctly, was like a lot of people, you know, say like it's the 31st of December and we stick to our wish for the next year and then they uh, start sticking to it and it gets harder and harder each day and they didn't crack in. So uh, I was just thinking mm -hmm. like how close you should set your boundaries to yourself till it infects your psychological <laughs> uh, brain. So, um, <laughs> But you answered the question yeah. correctly that um, it can be well, sometimes hell. I can hell. give you, <laughs> I think that most definitely can, because what eventually happened was that I got really, really tired of this ambition, but I couldn't find a way to back out of it. And every morning I was waking up with a list in front of me of the countries I still had to go to, regardless if I wanted to go to them or not, I still had to fight my way through that. And then we went from four years to five years to six years to seven years to eight years. And then a pandemic broke out <laughs> and I ended up being stuck in Hong Kong for two years, waking up every morning saying, okay, how long will this pandemic be? Will it be a two-week pandemic, a two-month pandemic, a five-year pandemic? Like, when is it enough enough? But I can tell you uh, something else in regards to to boundaries and And, and rules and, and limits, I decided that I didn't want to pay any bribes at any point. And I didn't want to pay bribes for a few reasons. One of the reasons was that I was representing the Red Cross as a goodwill ambassador, and I didn't want uh, anyone to tie bribes to the Red Cross. The other thing within bribes was that I believe that bribes are the or corruption at least is the, the cancer of a country. And I didn't want to be a part of that. So that has given me some hard times at checkpoints and borders and at embassies and consulates and, and many other places where it's just a natural part of the culture and the environment to pay bribes. And I wasn't just a person who didn't want to pay bribes. I was a foreigner <laughs> in the environment who didn't want to pay bribes. So I struggled with that. On top of that, um, I was trying to stick to a budget of 20 US dollars per day or 20 euro per day, more or less. And uh, that has given me a lot of hardship. Uh, because Did you break, that? Did you break that rule? Well, it, it wasn't a, a limit of 20 uh, euros per day. It, it was an average budget. 
So no, uh, to answer your question, no, I, I didn't break it in the sense that when I came back home after visiting all the countries without flying, my budget was very close to $20 per day as an average across the entire world. But sometimes you need to buy a visa for $100 or sometimes the bus is $40. Sometimes you're over the budget, sometimes you're under. And a third rule, which was less important, but which I also kept was I didn't eat at McDonald's at any point. <laughs> and it started with me saying that, uh, of course, I'm not eating at McDonald's because you should eat the local food and enjoy the local culture. But then it was two years, three years, four years without McDonald's. So I kept going. Excellent. So I, I assume you are a non-drinker and a non-smoker because 20 uh, euro would be quite a limited budget <laughs> for that. Well, here's the thing. Uh, if you go into the world, then you will meet an incredible amount of people. And a lot of them will be very welcoming and show a lot of hospitality. And that means you get a lot of beers for free. <laughs> so we uh, talked about that a lot. Excellent. Um, how was the feeling to touch quickly to your Hong Kong experience? I mean, you were constantly on the go. What do you do for two years in Hong Kong? I mean, did you start working or did you just listen to news in the morning and went to bed again? Or what? I mean, how did you deal with yeah. those two years in Hong Kong? I ended up building a life for myself. And Hong Kong became... I feel more connected to Hong Kong today than I feel connected to, to Copenhagen in, in Denmark. Uh, simply because I haven't spent much time in Copenhagen over the past 10 years. And I spent two years in Hong Kong and, and really explored and tried to understand and read and learn as much as I possibly could. But there's a big difference between arriving somewhere and knowing that you're going to be there for two years and arriving somewhere and thinking you're going to be there for four days and then learning it's going to be longer and not knowing how long it's going to be. So in my case, I was supposed to be four days in Hong Kong for transit and then go with another ship to the next country and the pandemic broke out. So in the beginning, I was networking a lot with the shipping industry and the various important people and trying to find a solution to get on a ship and go somewhere. And uh, I continued networking for a long time until it was declared a global pandemic. So I arrived before the virus had a name, but the virus outbreak had happened in Wuhan. So uh, I arrived in the very early days of the pandemic and, and, and had the full experience with people buying all the toilet paper and all this stuff um, two or three months before this happened in Europe. Then eventually there was some sort of acceptance that the situation was out of my control and there was nothing I could do. And then I figured, okay, Maybe it will disappear in two months or three months or four months. So then I will eat well and I will sleep well and I'll do some exercise and I'll get ready for the last nine countries. I only had nine countries left in the world when this happened. And then um, media started to um, contact me and uh, eventually CNN interviewed me while I was in, in Hong Kong. And this meant that I had hundreds of interviews after the CNN article, because that was world news, that a man was stuck in Hong Kong, nine countries from completing the project. 
So I did a lot of interviews and with the interviews came a lot of collaboration with uh, schools and companies and even with Hong Kong Tourism Board in Hong Kong. And then after about 11 months, Hong Kong immigration said <laughs> that I had to change my status. So I had to marry someone from Hong Kong. That was a solution. <laughs> Or I could start studying in uh, Hong Kong and get a student visa. Or I could get a job and have a work visa. So I ended up working for the Danish Siemens uh, mission. And uh, I got in touch with the container ships that were calling Hong Kong port because they were quarantined. They couldn't leave the ship. So I would basically ask them if they needed anything, if they needed cigarettes or PlayStation or plants or anything. And I would get long lists and I'd go shopping in Hong Kong and provide it to the ships. And then, of course, I built up my life. I had friends. I met with my friends once a week. I did a lot of hiking. I was raising funds for the Red Cross through different step challenges and other crazy things. Hong Kong is an interesting time in my life. It was two years which simultaneously is the worst time of my life and the best time of my life. Do you have any other uh, prejudices about the world which are often being uh, communicated? Well, so I, I think that we are quite busy dividing people by skin color or religion or language and uh, I mean there are different ways that we can divide people across the world to me I think it's it's rather silly because I found that there are incredible similarities between people in similar environments so I think that Muslims are not like other Muslims around the world and Christian people are not like other Christian people. And I mean, religion is not a good way to, to divide people. And, and language is also not because you have people speaking English or French or German around the world and they're completely different people. But if you live on an island, then there's a high likelihood that you're going to be similar to other people living on islands. You get island mentality. In the same way that if you live in a city or if you live in the countryside or if you live in a forest or if you live in desert or if you live in the mountains or if you live by the sea, like these things... I think you can divide people by that if you want to divide people. <laughs> that uh, this you'll really see some characteristica with uh, people from different environments, and uh, it's it's funny to see that you can have mountain people from the U.S. that are similar to mountain people in Nepal, just because of their environment. That's an interesting one. So one of my very two last questions: How many languages do you speak, and was language ever a problem? Uh, yes, language was uh, a problem <laughs> again and again, <laughs> but but not as much as you might think. I, I speak uh, three languages that I can more or less say that I speak full, uh, English and Danish and German. And uh, <laughs> so we could have done that interview in German. Es geht so, ich habe einige Tage kann ich ganz gut Deutsch reden und andere Tage nicht so gut. So it's better we, yeah. we stick with uh, I'm having a problem with my English then, tonight, but uh, I get along with it. Yeah. Then um, I know about 500 words of French and about 500 words of Spanish. So this is like speaking to a child. You know, I can say basic things, uh, what I need and who I am and where I'm going, but not 
politics and philosophy and things like this. And then I speak about 50 words of Arabic, uh, which is helpful to make people think that I speak Arabic, but then not very helpful after that. So when does language does get a problem? I mean, just because uh, most part doesn't understand English? I mean, English is conceived as being a world language. It is. And you will always find, no matter where you go, you'll find somebody who speaks English. The problem is that you don't always want to speak to the person who speaks English. Okay. <laughs> uh, sometimes you want to speak to the lady at the shop, but maybe she only speaks some local language. Or maybe you want to speak to a farmer. Or maybe you want to speak to some holy person or maybe i mean often uneducated people do not speak a lot of languages and often do not speak english so that's where it gets difficult and then in a completely different atmosphere so i come from denmark and denmark is about six million people and we speak danish And if we only spoke Danish, we would be in big trouble because not a lot of people in the world speak Danish. So we have our international language, which is English. And for a lot of people around the world, they have their local language and then English is the international language. But if you are a country living close to Russia, then you have your local language and your international language is Russian. And then by speaking Russian, you can speak to two or 300 million people, no problem. But you can't speak to me <laughs> because I don't speak Russian. How often do you have the feeling of giving up? Oh, thousands of times, thousands and thousands of times. I've been home for almost six months now. And still sometimes I hear this voice in my head that says, don't give up, don't give up, don't give up. And I feel like it's an echo from trying not to give up for 10 years. It, in the beginning, it was 99% adventure. I left home and everything was amazing and new and I'm meeting people and I'm sitting in buses and trains and I'm eating food and I'm seeing sunsets and I'm learning and I'm listening and it, it was fantastic. So it was 1% work in the beginning and 99% adventure. And after two years, it was 99% work and 1% adventure. And after three years and four years and five, I mean, at some point, I, I couldn't see any reason in the madness. I just wanted out. You know, I, I phrased this many years ago. I phrased this as that I have an option between being the man who quit or the man who did it. And I would much rather be the man who did it. And I was aware of that, <laughs> that I wanted to be the man who did it. I didn't want to go home and say that I was a quitter. So again, I was caught in my own ambitions. And I was two years in Hong Kong. Uh, I mean, my wife was at home. My friends were at home. My family was at home. Every day was a reason to quit. And can you give us a tip on how you keep going? Or like, what what is it? Are you having yoga sessions every morning, breathing technology? <laughs> or was it simply the belief or the the, the, the the belief that you won't be the one who is making it? I mean, is there anything you can give the listeners as a tip of how you can stay strong to achieve your goals? Yes, maybe a little bit. I learned something from the Chinese and I learned something from the Russians, which is long-term planning, like proper long-term planning, not what do you want next week or next year, but what do you want in 40 years? 
And if you have really long-term plans for yourself, then you also have to realize what it takes to achieve that goal. If you want to be a millionaire, then you have to lay out a plan for becoming so. If you want to learn to speak French, you have to lay out a plan. These things, they do not come overnight. These things do not come easy. So if you have a strong realization about who you want to be as a person and what you want to achieve in your life, then you also have to be ready to do long-term planning. And within long-term planning, there has to be a realization that it will be up and it will be down and it will be up and down and up and down. And in those moments, you can remind yourself that you're in a down period, but it will be up again eventually. So that has helped me a little bit throughout this. My overall goal was to reach all the countries without flying. Like that, that was the overall goal. And when the pandemic happened and that goal became impossible, um, I lost access to get on the ships and the countries I needed to go to, they closed their borders. So there was nothing I could do. Then I lost control fully. I fully lost control. Then something that worked for me was to set additional goals. And these had to be goals that were not easy to achieve, but they also had to be achievable. So one of my first goals in Hong Kong was I found out that Hong Kong has 75% nature and that they have uh, tall mountains. And I found out what the tallest mountain was. And then I decided I want to go to the top of that mountain and come back again within a day. And that was a relatively easy goal, but it was still hard enough that it felt like an achievement. And when I came back in the evening, I felt good because I had achieved something. And then I started setting other goals for myself and it got crazier and crazier and crazier. <laughs> but I mean, it was really efficient setting side goals uh, something that you feel that you can achieve if you work for it. And then if it's not a goal that's too far away, then you can have the benefit of feeling successful, even though that you might feel that you're failing somewhere else. The last question of this uh, first episode, um, I'd like to ask you <laughs> that you have planned a documentary and a book about your trip. Um, can you give us a little bit of an insight what's happening next with Tor Peterson and what are your plans uh, for the upcoming, what are your new goals, let's put it that way, when it comes to a documentary or books or <laughs> the lessons learned, what, what is out there for you? I find that I have a really important story and it would be a disaster if this story wasn't shared with the world in, in greater detail than most interviews and, and most podcasts have the format to provide. So a book is a very logical place that you can really put some thoughts and some lessons and some learnings into a book. And I'm currently speaking with a publishing house in the UK called Little Brown. And uh, they want to publish my book. And I have an agent called WME, um, which is helping me with the contract. And uh, we will start writing this book shortly maybe in a few weeks or, or or next month we'll start writing the book and then hopefully it will be ready by the end of the year or early next year we have also been working on a documentary for the past four years more than four years now i am a brand ambassador of salomon which is a french sporting brand 
And uh, they initiated this documentary as a 20-minute documentary. But the filmmaker, <laughs> the filmmaker who started working on it, he said that there's no way we can tell this story in 20 minutes. So now it looks like uh, possibly a two-hour full-feature documentary. And uh, it's in the final stages now. So we'll see if it goes to Netflix or if it goes on another streaming platform. But uh, the documentary is almost ready. And then it's about marketing when they're going to release it. Then uh, a third wheel is that I'm going on a speaking tour, but that's a Danish speaking tour in Denmark. I'm visiting eight cities in Denmark where I'll be standing on the stage and I'll be talking about some of the lessons and, and learnings and some of the adventures from all of this. And uh, people are also hiring me to go and speak at companies and events and, and so on. Excellent. And with that, we conclude the first part of our fascinating conversation. Be sure to join us for the second part, where Tor Pedersen and I delve deeper into his incredible journey and explore more about the impact of global travel on our perspectives and the future of exploration. Michael Mack presents The World Beyond. Imagine is of tomorrow. A Mac One production.